Right, hello, welcome to the uh, the latest episode of the Big Football Podcast. Uh, hosting as always, my name's Dan, and I'm joined this evening by Paul. Good evening. And Calm. Evening. I hope you were well rested after the uh, the week off, gents. Um, Khan, you were involved in a, a training ground collision. Um, that ruled you out, and Paul. Just a few a few minutes later, you were uh, whisked away on international duty, also known as work. <laughs> yeah, we just couldn't quite get ourselves together, could we, last week? But I'm glad to be back tonight, Dan. Yeah, and I'm sure people didn't want me to just talk by myself about uh, about a variety of things. Um, we're going to start off tonight on a bit of a, a somber note, as it always is when we lose. Um, Legends of the game. Uh, we lost uh, Peter Lorimer um, late last week, and today we've lost Frank Worthington, scorer of one of my favourite ever goals, which everyone will immediately recognise in the head when he was playing for Bolton, when he, he flipped the ball back over his head and sent the uh, the Ipswich defence for a copy of the Bolton Evening News. Yeah, he, um, he was obviously a member of uh, that generation, wasn't he, uh, Frank Worthington, who, who just, you know, they weren't necessarily tied to the professionalism that, that has come into football in more recent years. And I think he lived a very fulsome life. Um, uh, the, the famous story about him coming back off holiday and going for a medical at Liverpool, which he failed. Uh, and there being numerous rumours that I think it's probably better we don't go into now um, about the reasons why he might have failed that, that medical. Um, but safe to say, been living it up a little bit in Spain or wherever he'd been for the two weeks beforehand. Um, one of those sort of maverick players of that 70s generation who was a superb talent on the field and and probably lived his life to the full off it. Um, I think I looked today and he only got eight England caps, which for a player of his ability is probably not enough. And again, maybe he sort of... Um, lost out on some opportunities with England because he wasn't seen as being a kind of proper professional in the way that he lived his life. But um, I suspect he wouldn't change a lot of it. And uh, again, there was certainly a rumour, wasn't there, that he was having um, dementia-related issues. And we've we've talked about that on this podcast um, recently as well. And, uh, you know, it's it's very sad to see. Um, But... A, a real talented player and a, and a live wire. Peter Lorimer, obviously a, a member of that, um, member of that great Leeds United team, uh, that great era that Leeds had in the kind of early early nineteen seventies, and um, a real, you know, stalwart of the uh, of the club, and, and was involved, I think, at Leeds in a number of guises over the years. So again, very sad to to lose somebody with who was so respected in the football world. Um, and I'm sure Leeds fans in particular will have been, been very sad to to hear of his passing. Yeah, indeed. I mean, I think, you know, both players you sort of, you know, hear the names of, you know, even sort of growing up, you have a sort of vague knowledge of them. But of, I think for all three of us, they were they were sort of slightly, their pomp was just, just before... I think it's fair to say our our time watching football or even, you know, before before we were born, I think probably. Um so that they are players I know by by reputation rather than perhaps players I've seen. Certainly haven't seen them play in the flesh or, you know, the odd clip here and there. But um, you know, Lorimer certainly, you know, known as being a, you know, a great goal scorer in that in that sort of Leeds era, um, when they were, you know, quite a successful team. 
Um, and you know he was one of their their key key players up front, and and again sort of you know Worthington sort of again perhaps perhaps known by reputation as you know one of those kind of maverick sort of players as there as there were only of that era really you know we perhaps don't have them in in quite the same way anymore. Who's you know known for his sort of uh, you know. Uh, abilities on the pitch but also you know sort of uh you know maybe off the pitch a bit as well but um it all adds to the you know the character of the game and you know look let's face it we're talking about not just our generation ago now probably two or three generations ago right maybe even four so it it was it was a different game as, as they say back then and things were done differently so you know in that in that context you know not 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 necessarily so so outrageous and uh you know they're the, they're some of the characters that sort of keep you sort of almost interested in football in a way as well. Um, and, you know, just obviously but very, very sad to see, you know, that, you know, that yet again, the top of the agenda is, you know, kind of legendary names sort of passing us by. Um, you know, it feels like all through this season, um, you know, every few weeks there seem to be, uh, you know, you know, big, big name players of, of yesteryear who are, who are passing away. But I guess it's a fact of life as we as we get older, right? Those those players who are 30, 40, 50 years older than us, unfortunately, you know, that that sort of happens. Um, but uh, at least they've, you know, they've left their mark on the game. And, and like I say, the, the, you know, I know Gary Linick has sort of tweeted about, you know, um, Frank Worthington being a you know particularly legendary player for Leicester, and you know you mentioned Paul around you know Leeds fans in particular will be will be mourning the passing of of, of Peter Lorimer. So you know they they'll both be well remembered by the clubs, and I'm, I'm sure when when you know fans are back in the stadium, the clubs will be honouring them you know accordingly as well when when they're able to. Yeah, just on just on um, the the Frank Worthington thing in particular, I, I do think it's kind of sad that there's almost no place in in modern football the way it's played now, the level of fitness that you need. I mean, it, it has made the game better in many many ways, but I do think it's sad that those kind of maverick players, even the likes if you go back to kind of the generation that we remember, the, the probably the first generation of of Premier League footballers that, that the three of us would have grown up with, the likes of Paul Merson and Matt Letizia, there were still some of those maverick types in the game. And it, it almost feels now as though those those players have gone, haven't they, frankly? And and everybody now is a is a out-and-out professional um, and plays within a structure and a system. And, and some of that kind of individuality in those, those mavericks, it, it's it's sort of good and bad, I think, that the game's moved away from them. And and Frank Worthington is kind of one of the poster boys, really, for that generation of players. And, um, yeah, it, it just struck me today when I heard that news that um, he does feel like kind of almost one of the last of that generation of real, true footballing mavericks from the, from the 70s. And mm-hmm. um, the, the game just doesn't seem to have a place for people like that anymore. No, it 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 is. It's a really good observation. I think I think certainly anyone coming, you know, that's a product of an academy in this country yeah. has 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 that beaten out of them or they're weeded <laughs> yeah. out of the system, uh, whichever comes first. Um, I think yeah. the only time you get people like that is either someone who makes it who's come through the ranks and, and perhaps, and, you know, you're not saying he's a maverick, but, you know, a Jamie Vardy perhaps springs to mind as someone you could loosely put in that or who's someone who, who comes from, from overseas um, and perhaps hasn't quite had that sort of, you know, professional upschooling, if you like, and someone who maybe sort of comes comes to the to the top divisions maybe sort of slightly later 
um, can can bring that. I'm struggling to think of an example now, but I think they're the only two ways you you get some you know that sort of personality. Um, you know, maybe Ronaldinho, someone like that. I mean, even that's a while ago now, but um, you know, mm. someone someone of that ilk, for example, you know, who was undoubtedly a character um, as well as a, a phenomenal player. So perhaps the, the, they're they're the sort of only times where I think certainly anyone that's a product of a you know of an academy in a British club, you know, f- forget about it. They're all media trained robots by the age of ten, and that's <laughs> that's the way it is. <laughs> I, I'm I'm going to offer a counter theory because you've both neglected to mention. I think the closest we have to a maverick in the Premier League now, Jack Grealish. Especially when he drives like Richard Ammon at the check-in. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's a fair point, Dan. Jack Grealish has got a little bit of that in him, hasn't he? Um, it's it's that's that's a good observation. But but it's it might be why Gareth Southgate always keeps talking about Mason Mount. Um, uh, you know, and we did talk about it, didn't we, earlier in the year when we talked about why couldn't Grealish get in the England squad? We did talk about the fact that he maybe isn't Gareth Southgate's type of person. He isn't a robot of the academy system as, as Colin would would describe it um and I think it took a while for Gareth to get past that and think well okay yeah but he's clearly one of the best players available to me so I need to put him in the team um even if I do still find a place for Mason Mount uh <laughs> and I think I, I you know Mason Mount's a very talented footballer but he does fit a bit more that kind of slightly um typical academy graduate template doesn't he and and yeah Grealish is probably as close as we have in in the Premier League today as a uh, a bit of a bit of a maverick um and I wonder again if the fact that he maybe came up at Villa at a time when that club was a bit of a basket case and in a bit of disarray whether he maybe didn't quite have that same careful schooling that some of those other players we think about maybe did um but yeah, it's, it's definitely a, a different generation, a different time. But you, you watch those clips, the, the goal you're talking about, Dan, for Bolton, um, and some of the other clips that have been shown on the sports news and whatever today of Frank Worthington. And there were things he could do with a football that even some of the most talented players in the modern game couldn't do. He was just a real natural footballer. Yeah, he was. And, and legend has it that the Ipswich players are still reacting to that flick over his head. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Um, so our our wishes are with um, the families of both Peter Lorimer and Frank Worthington, and that goes without saying. So, uh, one thing I've wanted to, to to speak to you both about, but we've not had chance, and it's been a very fluid situation, is the collapse of football index. Now, I'm not a gambler. And that's what it was ultimately. It wasn't an investment platform. It was regulated by the the gambling commission, who, needless to say, are in a tailspin about this. They've not done a very good job. Um, to briefly summarise what football index is, it was what I thought the game was: was you highlight a player as he is a, a good price in a young age. So I'll always use um, my my example was Todd Cantwell. I thought for certain that Todd Cantwell would. Um, get a transfer in the summer when Norwich were relegated. He would get media, which would get him a, a sm- would get you a small payment per share, and his value would rise because he'd signed for Chelsea or Manchester United or Liverpool or whoever. Um, and it didn't work like that. Number one, Todd Cantwell didn't move, and number two, the the, the kind of the rules of the game changed. I only started playing it in May last year and the rules have changed three or four times and the rules changed for the final time a couple of weeks ago and 
everyone sold up and basically the market was worthless um i had a a nine pound share in bruno fernandez and i could i, I bought with money that i'd accrued from Lionel messi's media exploits uh, i i bought a share in bruno fernandez for 57 pence people have lost tens of thousands of pounds um mm. there's legal action in play and the, the gambling commission or launched an investigation into them in January 2020. It's collapsed in March 2021. Um, I think there might be quite a considerable legal fallout from all this. Yeah, it, it does seem strange, Dan, and I think the point that you make at the start, and I, I only know what I've read in kind of one or two newspaper articles and what and what we've spoken about, really, in terms of how this, this all worked. And my perception is that there was a bit of a branding issue here in the in the sense that you're right what it really was was gambling the evidence there is it's regulated by the gambling commission and not the fca the financial conduct authority but it, it very much didn't brand itself as gambling did it it very much branded itself and sold itself as being a kind of you know almost a stock market but the reason stock markets have I mean, there's a whole lot of other debates to be had about actually whether stocks and shares do have any value. But the reason the real stock market works is because there is still a tangible company turning a profit or a loss at the end of the day. Um, and you do have an actual share in that actual company. You don't have an actual share in Todd Campwell. <laughs> that might be against the law. I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure we've spent centuries trying to get rid of that mentality. Well, I, if you remember, Dan, there was that bloke who had shares in Carlos Tevez when he brought him to West Ham, wasn't there? That agent. Um, <laughs> I, I think we worked out that that was illegal, but only after we'd relegated Neil Warnock. Um, Which I'm, I'm all, for, all, all for all of the time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, I, I think what, what it essentially was was a gambling platform trying to portray itself as something different. Um, and, and I understand that some of the people who've who've lost a lot of money who don't have a lot of money in the first place. Um, I, I feel for them, but at the same time, you know, the, the the questions are about well, how were they allowed to go for so long, portraying themselves as one thing while ostensibly being something else? Um, and and you know, even if you play the real stock market where there are much better regulations in place, you, you know. Shares can go down as well as up, and and I think that's a a lesson that needs to be taken out of this. But the regulation point is really key for me. Why were the regulators not doing something earlier on in the process to say to the, the, the owners of Football Index and the people who operated it, look, guys, you have to be absolutely upfront about what you are really offering because it's not truly a stock exchange. Yeah, and just just sorry, Cam, before you come in, just to to give you an example of something the the, the most terrifying thing I've ever read in you know in, in social media groups about football index where you're looking to pick up tips and tricks. The words "Timo Werner is my pension." <laughs> um, because when he was at Leipzig and he was scoring goals every week, you know, he he was actually quite a valuable player. And then he signed for Chelsea and his, his value dropped. I thought it would be the way around in a, a bigger league with all due respect to the Bundesliga. Nope, that's not the way it worked at all. 
and this guy had spent his pension money on Timo Werner. I mean, I'm sure that that's how Chelsea feel at the moment as well. But I was going to say, hasn't his value dropped because he hasn't scored since about 1864? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, can go on. I had to, uh, I had to jump in with that. Sorry. No, 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 no. That's 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 fine, Dan. I mean, I I haven't ever you know interacted with this with this platform at all, which I'm obviously very, very glad about now. But um, but my understanding, you mentioned, uh, the only question I was going to ask, as, as, as you're obviously a bit close to this one, is you mentioned around the rule changes, which I understand is around the kind of slashed the dividends, right, the, all the payouts. That was what um, caused the crash, yes. Yeah, so I mean, is there any, is the assumption there that they were basically trying to sort of recoup you know that someone somewhere behind the scenes was trying to take the money and run sort of thing for uh, you know is is that is that sort of the conspiracy theory or or is there any sort of knowledge around what motivated that that such a drastic change sort of out of the blue is, is there any sort of knowledge on that or is that what's being investigated now or like, i don't know where it sits currently i'm going to have to be very careful with my wording here because this is an active legal proceeding but yeah the the conspiracy theory is and it, this circulates around Jadon Sancho shares, which were minted at seven pound a go. People bought it, and then within the, I think was it within four days they were worth, uh, I think it was forty five pence. So th- there is that conspiracy theory of it, but b- basically the company said, you know, we can't sustain paying dividends. I, I th- th- there was in play dividends, so if if Lionel Messi scored a goal. And set up a goal, you would get rewarded for that. You know, it was only something like I can't remember how much it was. I think it might have been a pence, one pence a share. But if you've got a thousand shares in Lionel Messi, then you know, like suddenly that's going to add up very quickly. Um, so the the they kind of changed that. They got rid of it, but they had like best player of the day, and Lionel Messi used to win that quite often, which is why I had shares in him. Again, it's only twenty four p a go. If if you win that though, and you've got lots of shares, then there you go. That's where the, the money's in, it and it's a higher um, return on your investment than than any high street bank offering at the moment, which is what drew people to the platform in the first place. Um, but th- this latest dividend, they basically accepted that they couldn't afford it, and that's why they went into administration. They crashed the market, and whether they went to do that or not, then that's down for the authorities and Lee Day, who handling the legal aspects of it, to, to decide, not me. Um, but that's what caused the market to crash when they slashed the dividends. The big players all said, for my shares are now worthless practically, I'm out. Everyone sold, and... I mean, I'm lucky, Khan. I only had about £65 in it. It was just a bit of fun for me. Um, and I'm not a big better. I've, 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 I only spent what I could afford. And I could, you know, I, I put, like, I think I think I put 65 quid in in total. And I made about 15 I'm there you're going to see it, because it's con. Um, but that's that's what it was about. If I could have sold my players for what they were worth, then I would have made about, I would have made money, but you can't do that anymore, and that's the big problem. And I, I feel so, so bad for the the people. Some people have lost tens of thousands of pounds. It's just gone, poof, in a puff of smoke, and it's it's absolutely crazy that they've been investigated for so long, and no one has actually done anything. And before you know it, m- moving on from from that rather unsavoury topic, um, nice to see that the the women's super league has got quite. Um, 
a, a wide ranging and visible TV deal this week with Sky Sports, and I think the BBC have got some games as well. Yeah, it's, it's the BBC and Sky, Dan, is my understanding. I mean, they've the previous deal was with the BBC, um, but games critically were not shown on the on the main channels. They were generally behind the red button. Uh, I think it was it might have even been BBC and a bit of BT, but this is a significant increase on their previous contract. Um, I think it's it's worth seven million pound a year for three years, which is just incredible money for women's football. Um, Forty-four games a season uh, shown on Sky, um, and and then I think another twenty odd on the BBC. The vast majority of those games on the BBC have to be shown on the uh, on the two main channels, which I think is really good news. Um, and it, it just it's it's a signal that uh, that that women's football is starting to to get to the point where it's where it's making a cut through. I think my my thinking when I when I read this story the other day, particularly with the BBC, but I think it applies to Sky as well. For me, the the thing that will make this stick and will make it really work and will make it a deal that isn't just a one-off and then disappears again in three years' time is getting the presentation and the packaging right. And I think part of that is the BBC and Sky have to know who their audience for this is. And if what the BBC do is just a lazy rehash of this Excuse me. If what the BBC do is just a lazy rehash of the way that they present Match of the Day or the FA Cup, or, or involves Danny it, Murphy, if or involves Danny Murphy's voice, um, it, then this will fall flat. I think they need to really identify who the market is for this, and primarily the market for this, not exclusively, but a lot of the market for this is going to be young girls who think that they can grow up to be professional footballers now in a way that 20 years ago wasn't an option for for young girls of kind of our generation and you know girls who want to be the next Steph Houghton or Lucy Bronze or or Jordan Nobbs or whoever it might be uh, I think that is the the target market for this and if they package it properly and they targeted at those people and the parents of those people then then this can work if what they try and do is just package women's football like men's football and put it on in the same way then I don't think they're targeting the right audience and in three years time they'll go oh well that didn't work sorry women's football we're leaving you up the swanee now because that seven million a year you've got used to it ain't there anymore um so it's about all all partners involved in this really understanding exactly what the product that they're selling is and understanding how to sell that to to fans um the bbc have done a really good job when they've had the sort of big women's tournaments in the past the summer tournaments um the viewing figures for those have been pretty good uh, they need to make sure that they've got a way now to leverage that into a into a regular weekly um, audience for for games from the Women's Super League because I think the product is inc- it, it is drastically better than it was twenty years ago. Um, you know, my I had a second cousin who played um, sort of semi pro women's football probably thirty years ago now, closer or. 30, 25 years ago, more than 20. Um, and I went and watched games then, you know, they used to play in the Women's FA Cup and get drawn against some of the bigger pro sides. And they played Doncaster Bells one year and they played at Blackburn one year. So, you know, the, the standard of the games compared to then is is hugely improved. The product now is actually pretty decent. 
Um, it's about the way that the BBC and, and Sky are able to package it up and, and present it to consumers because I think if they do it right, this has got legs. Can do you think Roy Keane's going to appear on Sky um, criticising <laughs> criticizing anyone that moves? <laughs> who, who knows? Who knows? I, I, I think it's a really, it's a really good um, point that, that Paul's made around the, the sort of packaging and presenting of it. Uh, you know that that it, you know, is likely to be a diff, you know different audience than the people tuning in to watch Match of the Day. So it will be interesting on how they do that. I, I think the, the deal itself feels like you know a natural progression based on how the games evolve. You know, as Paul says, it's come on leaps and bounds, and I think the last decade has been really transformational for it in particular. You know, I think the World Cup final was it viewed by over a billion people worldwide or something like that. Like it's clearly been growing. It just perhaps hasn't quite had the platform to be regularly visible. And that's what this deal is clearly trying to do by like say not having it hidden behind the red button or whatever i you know if you'd asked me a year ago you know oh there's some women's football and i wouldn't have even known which channel to start with to be quite frank you know i just wouldn't know where to look for it um whereas you know hopefully now that they've spent some money on this between the broadcasters there'll be good promotion of it it'll be on the you know the the proper channels if you call them that and and they'll be easier for for people to watch and you know and it it, hopefully if if it's done right it will help to um, you know, to, to grow the fan base um, and, and, you know, possibly attract people across all, you know, all, all sort of demographics. Um, so, yeah, definitely, you know, it, it does seem like really good progress um, and, and, and a sort of, like I say, nat- natural progression of how the game's been uh, been, been improved. Um, and, yeah, in, in, you know, interested and excited to see how, how it goes. And, um, you know, I mean, we, we kind of have joked about, you know, it's not it's not as if they're lacking in TV football at the moment. So no. it'll be, uh, you know, it's obviously something else to throw into the mix. So it'll be interesting to see how, you know, these games are sort of juggled in amongst um, everything else. Obviously, the BBC doesn't have as much live sports, you know, as, as the other broadcasters, but Sky do. Um, so, yeah, it'll be also interesting to see how they sort of shape that dynamic and, and, and how they market it and who they market it at. It'll be, it'll be interesting to see that approach as well. I think it's um, it's really important for the England women's team as well because they, they've got to that point under under Mark Sampson and then under Phil Neville where they are kind of right on the cusp, aren't they? They're getting to semi-finals of World Cups and European Championships, and they've they've won the She Believes Cup one year, and they're right on the cusp of being a team that can break through and win a major international tournament. Um, and I think the thing that's holding them back from doing that at the moment is. Uh, it's probably been that little bit of money compared to, you know, the US and and maybe Germany and and a couple of others. And if this money can filter its way through to just improving some of the, you know, extra bits and pieces that go around it, whether it's training regimes, whether it's diet, whether it's uh, just equipment for the for the England team to use whether it's just being able to keep more of our better players playing in the women's super league and and developing a bit more of a kind of team ethos whether it's better money filtering down to the academy level I think this could be the final push that the England women's team need to go on and and win a world cup I mean I they have won international tournaments before but a long long time ago when there were many fewer countries playing the game and and interest was next to nothing. Um, You know, it's been dominated at international level by the US for a number of years now. England are right on the cusp and hopefully this extra money, extra investment can just push them over the edge. 
Yeah, um, very, very interesting for me both. Um, certainly, as long as we can make sure to, to keep Danny Murphy and Martin Keown away, that will certainly help any presentation issues. <laughs> and Jermaine Jenneth. And Jermaine Oh, Jenneth. yeah, God, Jermaine Jenneth. Jesus. Yeah, um, War Alan, Alan Shearer can turn up. He's all right. He's um, gone particularly bold recently, though, I've noticed. I, I don't know if I don't know if they're going to expect Alex Scott to do all sort of sixty games um, across the two <laughs> channels because she does work for both BBC and Sky, doesn't she? But um, yeah, Alex yeah. might need a break every now and again. She's got question of sport as well now, hasn't she? So she will need a break every now and again. Um, again, it's it, it is another opportunity the way they present it, uh, as I say, to, to to get some new faces involved and. Um, BBC seem to use Dion Dublin on the women's football a lot. And, uh, you know, I've always thought the BBC should make better use of Dion because not only can he sell you a house at an auction, <laughs> but he, 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 um, he, actually, he actually talks about he's, he's big on knocking through between kitchens and dining rooms, Dan. That's the tip, of, uh, that's the tip for Dion Dublin. It's always about open plan living for Dion. Um, but the, uh, I think he talks more sense than some of the pundits the BBC use on a more regular basis on the football. We definitely need to have that pundit podcast, don't we? We keep talking. About <laughs> we, we, I'll we save definitely... my views on Dion for that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, certainly. Um, yeah, I, I do because my parents are, are, are both retired now. I, I do catch more of. Uh, of morning television than I should, and, and yeah, he does like to knock through a, a good wall, does Dion? Yeah, yeah, knock that wall down. Yeah, but before uh, before we start turning our listeners away, you haven't turned into the um, the renovation podcast. Um, we'll we'll move on. Um, another more slightly sombre subject, Paul. Uh, I, I didn't watch it myself, but I know you did. Uh, football's darkest secret, and, and I know this is something we've had conversations about in the past. Because you used to live in in Cruz catchment area and you used to play football to a, a pretty decent level, um, and you, you know you've talked about your experiences. What 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 did you think of it? Yeah, so I watched the first episode of the series last night. I believe there's three. I think the other two were already online. Um, I don't know whether they're tonight and tomorrow night on on TV or whether they're next week and the week after. But I think all three are, are now available online. Um, the first episode last night featured a lot on the you know Andy Woodward and the stories from crew um and Steve Walters and the other players at crew who were abused by um Barry Bernal um it, it was it was difficult watching Dan as you can probably imagine with that sort of thing and I think there's the serious questions for for football to answer and I think the thing that strikes me and, and the conversations we've had in the past both Con and I are from that kind of neck of the woods and um uh, you know, when I played youth football in, in North Staffordshire and South Cheshire, which was probably, I think I'm 10 years younger than Andy Woodward. So when I played football in, in that area at that time, the kind of thing about, and it was after Benell had been sacked from crew, I think he was probably in prison for the first set of offences, the ones in the US. But, but there was still this thing about crew. If one of the players you were playing with in your team got invited to a trial at crew, or if there was a lad you were playing against who you knew had been on trial at crew, there was always this thing about, yeah, you have to watch the coaches at crew because they like boys. It, it, it was just a thing. Now, I didn't, I'd never heard the name Barry Bernal. I didn't know anything about him. 
Um, but that reputation of crew liking to bring, bring through young boys, wink, wink, and there's a reason for that. It, it wasn't a secret in, in that community of kind of youth football in that area at the time. It, it was sort of open and everybody talked about it. And, you know, there were the jokes made with the sort of, you know, slightly um, uh, offensive phrases, uh, re, you know, referring to, to players that went and played there. And um, I, I struggle to believe. Um, and of course, you, you, you could, I came out of that era and, and sort of thought, well, it was all just obviously rumours until the until the Andy Woodward story breaks. But when that story broke four or five years ago, and you think back to those kind of conversations that you'd hear around that time, you can't help but think to yourself, if that was such a sort of open, known secret, as it were, why why were people not taking closer interest then? And, and, and obviously, Crew Alexandra have a lot of questions to answer, as do Manchester City, who employed Barry Bernal previously. Um and I think it was David White who was on the show last night and uh, obviously played a few games for England. Again, a Manchester City player of, of you know my early years watching football um, who was abused by, by Barry Bernal when he was involved with Manchester City and the youth teams there. Um, or youth teams that were associated to Manchester City, I should say. Um, you know, these clubs that had involvement with Bernal and I believe Stoke had some involvement with him as well, they have a lot of questions to answer. The report is now out in the public domain. There's questions today about whether that report goes far enough, whether there are areas um, that haven't been looked into, whether there are incidents at other clubs. And I know the, the Gwyn Williams stories at, at Chelsea have, have been in the news again today. Um, but, but ultimately, football simply did not do enough in the 70s and 80s when this behaviour was rife. It did not do enough to stop these men um, infiltrating youth systems and football clubs around the country. Um, and if there is one thing, you know, we, we joked earlier and Khan joked, and I, I agree with the joke about the sort of slightly robotic professionalism of, of football academies now. If there's one thing that we must hope, it's that professionalisation of youth football in, in England at the club level. Um, with safeguarding officers and child support officers and all those things involved that weren't there 30 years ago. Let's hope it means that there's never going to be another Barry Bernal or, um, you know, the, the, the other um, guy, the guy at Southampton whose name escapes me. Uh, but, but, but let's hope that there's no more of these cases because um, it, it seems to me as though if you, if they were bringing footballers to the, to the professional clubs and getting talented young boys to sign for these clubs, the clubs almost didn't care what was happening when they weren't at training and when the, you know, when the doors were closed. Um, and that's really, really upsetting and really worrying. And it's, it's ruined lives. I mean, there are, there are players who've suffered that abuse. who have gone on to be, you know, to have major alcohol problems. Paul Stewart was on there. Dan obviously was a big signing for Liverpool. Um, in the in the early 90s from Tottenham, he played 20-odd games for Liverpool, having been bought for what was a lot of money at the time. He he said he, he, he never played a game for Liverpool sober. You know, he, he was either coked up or drunk at pretty much his whole Liverpool career. His first England call-up, he turned up to the England squad drunk. Um, he, he, you know, these... I'm, I'm not saying that everything relates back to what happened to, 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 
kids when they're abused, but the evidence is there that it affects lives. There are there are cases where there are players who we think were potentially involved who, you know, have taken their own lives, and there are um, families that will have been torn apart by by what happened. Um, and um, let's just hope that football has got its act together. I think there's still some work to do to to mend some of the bridges with the past, but let's hope moving forward we never we never experience anything like this again. Yeah, I think that's that's incredibly well well said there, Paul. Well done. I mean, yeah, it's a, a brilliant summary, really. Yeah, well um, done, I man. haven't, yeah, I, I haven't seen the program yet. I will, you know, certainly watch it. Um, and and the you know the the, the 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 full the full series whenever whenever they're out. Um, I did, of course, read the stories. You know, when when the Andy Woodward, you know, when he sort of waved anonymity and the story broke. You know, a few years ago. Um, you know, read through the it was Daniel Taylor, I think, wasn't it, in the Guardian who sort of um sort of reported on it all. And I think he, you know, got a lot of recognition for the work he did on it as well as a journalist. Um yeah. but obviously the real courage is of course with the you know the, the men who've who've spoken out um and have talked candidly about the effects it's had on them. Some of them you've just listed there as well, and the sort of horrors that they went through and then the horrors they've had to go through almost to deal with it and try and process it by themselves um in silence is just, you know, it was horrendous to read. And I can't imagine this program's gonna be a uh, you know, a sort of a, a, a nice watch if you like, but I think a necessary one. Um, and, you know, particularly given, you know, where, you know, the sort of locality of it to where we're from, you know, I remember, I mean, I didn't sort of play any club football, but even just in school, you know, there was things mentioned and whatever. And, you know, you're never really sure exactly what people were talking about or joking about and whatever, you don't quite understand almost the seriousness of it when you're sort of 10, 11, 12 years old or whatever. Um, but it was definitely a thing then. It was definitely known. It was spoken about in public um, and yet, as you say, the authorities, you know, clearly were not interested enough to do anything about it, either the authorities within football or or the, you know, the police themselves, you know, the law. And it's only now retrospectively um, in the era that we're in that all of a sudden it's people take these things more seriously and people are retrospectively being, um, you know, being brought to justice. But it's it's sort of, you know, too little, too late, really. And um, we just have to hope that. Yeah, we are now that, that that society and football has moved on to such a degree that something like this can't sort of happen in the shadows. And that if there was any hint of it, you know, you would hope that there are now the right mechanisms in place to, to, to sort of weed it out and stamp it out. And, uh, you know, very, very quickly. Um, obviously, we don't we don't know that with certainty because. Um, we don't know what sort of goes on behind the scenes, but you'd, you'd have to hope that in this day and age that it, it, it wouldn't be happening anymore. And it's just uh, incredibly sad for people of, of of that sort of generation, unfortunately, that, that so many people um, unfortunately did have to, to, to go through it and, and the sort of horrendous effect it's it's had on their lives. It's just an, 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 you know, an incredibly sad story, unfortunately. Um, and it's it's a really tough one to to sort of read about or, or listen to because it, it, ju- it just sounds absolutely awful. I think it, they, didn't, it, they didn't mention it on the first episode last night, and I don't know if it will come later in the series, but I remember when Andy Woodward um, broke his story initially, him saying that like the first person that he ever told in football who actually even seemed to take it seriously and, and want to help him was Neil Warnock when he played for Neil at Sheffield United. 
Um, and he, he played for Neil Warnock at Berry and had a really good spell. Um, and then Neil Warnock got the Sheffield United job and he'd taken Andy Woodward with him. And then there was, I, I can't remember what the trigger was, but there was a trigger relating uh, to, to, to Bernal um, that happened that, that set Andy Woodward into a bit of a, a negative spiral and he was he was struggling with panic attacks. And, and he eventually told Neil Warnock what, you know, what the root cause of his, of his um, mental health issues were. Um, and Neil Warnock essentially made excuses uh, in public for Andy Woodward to go and take a break away from football. And they kind of created an injury story that, 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 that wasn't the reality because Neil Warnock said to him, look, you know, it's more important that you go away and you try and sort out your, your mental health. And, um, and I think, you know, it, it shouldn't get to that stage where you end up sort of five, six, seven, eight years into a professional career uh, before you're able to find somebody in football who who even you know took took it seriously and uh, it, it just it, it does make you wonder about what the culture was in the game um, at that point and and there's also a bit of me that just wonders whether the kind of the issues that football has and still has frankly and hasn't resolved with with sexuality. Um, that it almost turned a blind eye because it would have meant football had to admit there were gay people. Now, uh, you know, I'm not defending um, the, the, the likes of Barry Bernal and saying, oh, it's just because they weren't accepted for their sexuality. Not at all. But I think, I think part of the reason it was so easy for football to turn a blind eye was not only was it paedophilia, it was something else that at the time football was pretending didn't exist. Um, and and it, it you know, as I say, that there are lots and lots of things that were, were badly done in that generation that hopefully um, will never be allowed to occur again. Um, well, well done, both of you, for, for talking about this so articulately. And, and if anything comes up, we'll we'll revisit this on on you know next week if if anything else comes up. But you know, it, it's it's a very uncomfortable subject. But it's just, as as Khan has said, it's something that should be looked at because you know just because it's uncomfortable doesn't mean it should be ignored and it absolutely cannot and I'm I'm really hopeful that things have changed as a result of all this yeah let's hope so yeah yeah um to to move on to um a less somber subject hopefully um why we're playing international football now, gents? What have we done to deserve this? I, I, I don't really want to. I don't. I don't even know who England are playing. That's how interested I am. But I just know that, like, there's, the, the, the prime minister is concerned about a third wave washing up on our shores, and we're playing international football. What are we doing? Why are we doing it? Is there any points? You know, can we not just agree to give France or Brazil the World Cup or Italy and have done with it, and not bother with this desert tournament? Yeah, it, it does. It does seem, uh, yeah, complete, completely crazy. And we, you know, we've spoke about this so many times now, but it, it keeps coming back because the games keep happening, <laughs> and we react to them every time with the same thing. And it, it, it just seems crazy, as you know, as you say, the situation in Europe is, um, you know, has started to get worse, um, and it, it just, you know, I feel like we're at such a critical point in trying to get out of the mess that so many countries have got themselves in with the handling of the, the, you know, the coronavirus that 
you know, now just sending, you know, essentially thousands of people, um, you know, across all the different, you know, squads and the people that will, that will be traveling. We're talking about thousands of people, you know, traveling all, all across Europe and even with the best will in the world and the controls that I'm sure that, you know, that all the authorities will say are being taken place and the protocols and so on. You know, let, let, let's face it, it, it's not bulletproof, is it? And it just, it seems to jar with all the messaging that's been given to the public is like being thrown out of the window so that some people can play some games of football. Um, it it just seems a bit nuts, to be honest. Um, yeah, I think that's about all I can say on it. Well, I, you know, I think what you can't underestimate is how desperate people are to see England play San Marino in Albania. <laughs> <laughs> the the only yeah the the only good news is that they're the kind of games where I end up getting somehow convinced by someone to go to Wembley once a year to watch and regret yeah. it about four seconds into the game. Just like can we just go to the pub? Whereas at least now I can't do that. So at least you know I'm fifty quid better uh, off. Uh, we are playing Poland as well. In fairness, I think that's oh, the good. third of the three games. <laughs> <laughs> but Poland might at least be able to put 11 professionals out, which San Marino certainly can't. I suppose Albania probably can, albeit you'd have to go to quite a low level of professionalism. Um, you know, I, I think, uh, yeah, the, 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 this is a pretty pivotal time in the in the kind of COVID response around Europe, and you would think, actually, that keeping the doors shut um, would be a little bit of a sort of no-brainer at this stage but that's not where we are so um you know players are going to jet around europe and then they'll come back and no doubt there'll be players missing games because if you remember uh the last time we had the the little covid outbreaks was after the international break in november time and then we did have a little spell didn't we around christmas which is probably to be expected given how close together some of the the games were um we're going to have teams ending up playing games at the business end of the season club teams playing games at the business end of the season without critical players to their to their squad because they jetted off around Europe to play in some World Cup qualifiers for a World Cup that, frankly, um, people care less about by the minute um, that's going to be played in the middle of winter uh, in a pretend country. Um, and <laughs> when, you, when you put all those factors together... It, it's it's not the most sort of alluring prospect. Um, I suppose the only thing uh, that makes it sort of bearable is at least it gives us a couple of weeks off having to watch the Thursday Cup, um, <laughs> which sadly is what my focus is resorted to for the rest of this football season because um, I don't think you get any trophies for finishing 10th. I, I have a plan to, to, to jazz the World Cup up. Let's send the ultimate knockout team. Let's send Sevilla... <laughs> Let's yeah. see if Sevilla can win the World Cup uh, and only play games on a Thursday. <laughs> yeah. The World Cup lasts long enough as it is, though, doesn't it? If you can't play more than once a week, and, um, yeah. I, I, I mean, we've said all there is to be said. I think about the stupidity of continuing to play these internationals at a time when the world's basically in, you know, some sort of lockdown and. Um, and, and especially now, because it does feel like in this particular a, a wave of the of the virus, um, countries are at quite different stages. So the UK is on its way out of a lockdown. France is on its way into a lockdown. Italy's middle of a lockdown. It just feels like this is a straight... Uh, 
at least in the autumn when we were playing the international games in August and September, everyone felt like they were on a bit more of an even keel at that stage. That there was, you know, the levels of the virus were generally lower. We feel like now there's quite a difference between countries and is it really a good idea to be sending footballers in? I mean, you could make the same argument, frankly, about the Thursday Cup and the Champions League at this point. Um, and you know my view, Dan, I'd be quite happy to do what they did last season and end it all in a round-robin tournament. But um, I don't think that's going to happen. They're going to play through to a finish. Yeah, it, it, it does look like it. Can, can we not? Can we leave the Champions League alone, please? I'm, I'm quite happy with how that's going. We can end the end the league. I tell you what, let's just revert to last season standings for the league. That's fine by me. But um, leave the Champions League alone. But yeah, it's, it's if all... if they terminate the league this season, Dan, are you willing to let Man City have the trophy? Of course not. <laughs> they, they will be met with the same resistance that we were last season. <laughs> But in in all seriousness, I'm not so sure that like, we we need to see Jack Grealish trying to like outdo Mason Mount against San Marino. You know, it's not we don't need international football right now. There's a way to make those games up. In, in fact, let let's really jazz things up. Let's let's play the World Cup qualifiers in a round robin. Yeah, well, I mean, th- there is an argument for that. That, and in fact, that's what they're doing this international week. They're playing the group stage of, is it the Euro under-21s? Yes, or the under-21s yeah. World Cup? Um, I can't remember whether it's the Euros or the World Cup, but the, the under-21 tournament is playing the group stage um, uh, this coming sort of three-week period. Uh, and then it's going back in the summer just to play the knockout phases. It makes sense. Therefore, it's a surprise it's happening. <laughs> Uh, all I will say though is if, if Gareth wants to make sure that Trent misses most international squads I'm completely down with that kind of behaviour <laughs> not that I have any problems with Trent having an international career but I do um, <laughs> <laughs> well, we're getting getting towards the, the end here now um, and the, it feels for all this criticism of playing all of the football all the time um, I, I actually got an email from Liverpool saying that my season ticket renewal will, will be out soon which is um, a bit of a surprise, I think. I, I don't know if we're ready to be talking about such things because the, like, the, the situation could change at any given time. Um, but yeah, I, I will be expected to stand and deliver for £850 in a few weeks um, for my season ticket. And don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm really looking forward to going back, but um, I, I'm not so sure that selling like 20,000 seats at the, at the moment is a good idea, but it does feel a bit like there's some, some light at the end of the tunnel. Well, I suspect the clubs need the money probably more than anything. It's, uh, it's perhaps their pockets. The, the, the light might be the light in their pockets, if you like, um, rather than... Because uh, I, I, I don't know about how you guys are feeling, but I'm... I'm remain a little bit sceptical that the the event side of this lockdown plan is is going to stick to the dates that have been mentioned. It doesn't quite feel that we're on that trajectory. I might be wrong. Very I hope skept- I am. Very um, sceptical, Carl. Uh, yeah. So, but, but I suppose this is more for, this is for next season, right, that you're talking about anyway. Um, I'm, I'm assuming, Dan, right, this, the, whether, whether fans were back in for the last few games of this season's neither here nor there of what, what you're talking about. So we're talking sort of what August, aren't we, for a, a normal season to be starting. Um, so that that is still hopefully um, achievable. But uh, 
but yeah, I think it's 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 gent- <laughs> gently gently steps, right? Uh, we just need to we need to see how it goes. But I mean, that is that is encouraging that that you that you're getting that uh, through. I've I've also had a, a remark, you know, sort of notification that my my membership is expiring, which it does every year. And then you you know you obviously you chub up a few quid um, to renew it again to have the 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 privilege of entering a ballot and you might get a ticket if you're lucky, which is how the system works um, at, at Man United. So, I mean, I'll, again, I'll, I'll likely do that just because on the hope that, you know, there will be games to go to next year and I might be able to get to a couple of them um, all being well. So it, it, it is good to see that coming back because it sort of reminds you of the, you know, the normality of watching football. But I think, um, yeah, there's still uh, still a bit to go yet and I, I wouldn't be sort of putting any bets on things happening um, you know, in in the next few months at least. But uh, yeah, hopefully for next season we are able to get get fans back and get people going back to games. And I know, no, Dan particularly, I know how much you know how you how much you miss it as well. Being a being a regular sort of season ticket holder as well, it must you know it's, you've spoke before about how tough it is not having that in your life. And you know we know that's the the many the case for you know for season ticket holders you know up and down the country who are used to that sort of as part of their their daily life who've, who've been denied it because of covid so yeah the sooner the better that it comes back i think i don't know if you've heard the news tonight uh calm but we're cautiously on the path to freedom oh really yeah no, I, yeah, I have, that, yeah that was uh, because we've shown courage discipline and patience can, can i just point out though that i don't want the road to freedom for the thursday night cup <laughs> I'm, I'm not. If, if we finish in the Thursday night positions, I'm not going to be. Uh, I will use my freedom to not have European football tickets on my season tickets. <laughs> yeah, it's more of a punishment being made to go. <laughs> yeah, I can just imagine Ben talking about my punishment must be more severe. Going oh god, the- that was the 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 last knockings of um, the Emery reign at Arsenal was it Eintracht we played oh my goodness I was there that night that was utterly 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 desperate I don't think um, I'll, I don't think I'll be there on Thursday night hopefully because we win the Champions League but I, 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 <laughs> the, the Emperor does not share my optimistic appraisal of the situation let's just say that no I I, I think I think as you said Dan I, I think we uh, we we probably aren't going to be back in grounds this season, but but let's hope so for next season. And as you say, while Con's un- undoubtedly right that p- part of the club's asking for the season ticket money is that they need some some cash in the coffers, um, hopefully it is a positive sign that we can get back to having fans in grounds. I'll, I'll, I'll confess, I'm not sure we're going to get back to full capacity stadiums next season even. I think there will have to be limits on crowd numbers for probably another winter no away um, fans yeah whether it's no away fans even you know maybe every other seat in in home uh, stadiums and and we might be looking at one third to two thirds capacity for for another 12 months but that is still better than watching football with you know plastic seats in the background which frankly is is awful from a, a tv spectating perspective um with that horrible can sound noise which again it's better than nothing but it's it's awful um and and as you say yeah i'd love to be back in the ground at some point but but even just getting season ticket holders which i'm not back into a ground so that the the spectacle for a tv viewer looks and feels a bit more real um i think is long overdue 
Yeah, um, um, if we can't get back into the ground, we've always got all of the football all the time, and now we've got all of the women's football all the time. The gargantuans of Birmingham City against the immovable force of Bristol City. <laughs> Wherever it is the football is on, we will have it here on this podcast as well as Sky and the BBC. Um, we've we've gone on quite um, quite a lot. We had some quite serious things to talk about tonight, and as as you know, we we like this podcast to be light hearted, but we can't shirk away from from the more serious matters. Is there anything else that you guys have had your eye on over the weekend? Um, I, I, I I've continue to be impressed by Bolton's form, but the the moment I said that they'll fall off a cliff, and I'll get uh, strung up by my microphone wire. <laughs> Yeah, I, I have, you know, I, I had noticed that the Bolton's form continues to be uh, continues to be impressive, Dan. I think um, the other the other team that I continue to be impressed by and continue to think they're about to fall away and there's no sign of it yet is Barnsley in the Championship, and um, they're they're one I think to really keep an eye on through this last sort of eight or ten games or whatever there is left. Uh, are Barnsley going to hold on and make the playoffs? Um, it would be a great story. I don't think since they're, they're one season in the Premier League, they've even sniffed being, being this close to it again. So uh, that's, I think, one of the stories of the Football League to keep an eye on um, through the rest of the season. And also just to note that uh, Kenny Jackett got the push at um, Portsmouth uh, last week, I think. They've been on a bad run since Christmas, really slipped off the pace in League One. Um, Kenny Jackett's been a good football manager for for a long time in those sort of football league one championship levels. He's you know done a good job at Millwall, done a good job at Wolves, done a good job at Portsmouth. He's not one of these managers who's kind of fly by night comes in and is gone six months later. He he tends to do decent spells at clubs, and um, I think he'd just kind of run its course at Portsmouth and he's been replaced by Danny Cowley who um, I talked about on the podcast before who I coached against right at the start of his career when he was at Concord Rangers in the Essex Senior League and um, uh, I thought it was very harsh to get sacked at the end of last season from Huddersfield so I hope Danny um, I hope Danny does well at Portsmouth and, and hopefully they can still sneak into a playoff position. Richie Wellens was given the bullet yesterday as well, wasn't he? Yeah, that that got quite a lot of media pick up, didn't it? Because um, Gary Neville, who talks about managers needing time, uh, sacked Gary Alexander at the start of the um, season specifically to bring Richie Wellens, who's a former Man United youth team player that the class of '92 know, um, in as as manager at Salford. And then they parted company on you know, by mutual consent, as is the phrase uh, that always gets used these days, which means we're sacking you, but we're giving you a lot of money to go away. <laughs> um, uh, so, yeah, he left Salford by mutual consent yesterday. Hence, lots of people retweeting, you know, tweets from Gary Neville talking about managers not getting enough time. And, uh, and as well with Richie Wellens, um, he won the... Um, yeah, they 19, won the football league trophy. The, the nineteen, the nineteen, sorry, two thousand nineteen, two thousand and twenty in twenty twenty one football league trophy. Checker trade, yeah, yeah, checker trade. Uh, I think is the right sponsor. Um, <laughs> and I also, I, I slightly wonder, Dan. You know, okay, they're on a bad run, Salford. They are on a bad run in the league, but they're, they're eighth. They're four points outside the playoffs in in League Two. Uh, sorry, ninth. Uh, five points outside the playoffs in League Two with a game in hand. Like, where do Neville 
and gigs and skulls and butt and the rest of them not Beckham because he clearly doesn't give him monkeys. <laughs> well, where do the where do the class of '92 think Salford should be this season? I don't know, but um, why doesn't Paul Scholes insert himself into the dugout so he can quickly uninsert himself like he did at Oldham? <laughs> well, he, well, he, he did he did that at the start of the season when they got rid of Alexander. He did one game as caretaker. Um, you know, I, I just I don't know. Uh, I'm not quite sure where they think Salford should be. And they have to be a bit careful there that they don't do what I call Rushton and Diamonds, which is they take a really little non-league club and grow it to the point where it's unsustainable. Because, I, you know, I, I, I just I wonder if Salford can really support. It's a big area, Salford, don't get me wrong. But if it can really support another football league club when it is literally across the, you know, across the road from, from the part of Manchester where Manchester United live... I, yeah, I, I don't know. I think getting them into the football league, great. Where do they think Salford's end game is? Are they trying to get in the Premier League? If they are, then the class of '92 haven't got enough money to do that. As rich as they all are, um, you've got to be super rich now to fund a fund a club in the Premier League. Uh, I, it just makes me wonder, really, where what their end game is. Well, that, um, that that's it, isn't it? I mean, are they trying to be an Aldi Man United? Or at the Salford City, you know, like, it, it, where does the class of '92 end and Salford City begin? It kind of seems to be like a bit of a blurred line to me. Yeah, I think it is, and I, I just think, like I say, what what's their ambition has to be realistic. If if their ambition is for Salford to be a consistent League One, League Two, yo-yo type team, I think that's fair enough. But their second year in the Football League, they've still got a shot at the playoff positions with, with 10 games to go, and they're sacking their manager. Feels to me like their their expectations may be a little unrealistic. Now, I don't know what budget they're paying. I'm, I'm guessing it's one of the bigger budgets in League Two. So maybe they'd say, well, we're putting the money up. We want to see the results. But if it is one of the biggest budgets in League Two, why is it one of the biggest budgets in League Two? You know where where do they actually long term want to take it? Now Gary Neville can't continue to be a Sky Sports commentator if he's commentating on the club he owns every week, can he? No, true. Although he started wearing a Peaky Blinders kind of flat cap as well, so uh, Gary Neville's on my hit list at the moment. <laughs> well, they they do film that in Manchester, don't they? So maybe he's hoping to be an extra. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he is. If there's a new series coming out, maybe he's in it. He's not, it's not set in Manchester, though, is it? Isn't it set in Birmingham? No, it's set in Birmingham. But there's, there's there's bits of it in, in Manchester where they have the set because the buildings are of that right. era. Of that uh, era. So got you, got you, got you. They do film a lot of it up there. There's a, there's a set up there at the moment. Uh, and, um, yeah, so maybe, maybe he's been popping along for a bit of filming. Maybe that's where he's got the hat from. Roy Keane needs to watch out because if he's got the razor blade under there, he'll be in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Roy, Key, Roy Keane eats razor blades for breakfast cans <laughs> in his own mind anyway he, he, he yeah. might not carry razor blades around but he does a cracking line in walking dogs he does <laughs> yeah um, that poor dog have you, have you got anything else Khan, or have we kind of cast our scared an eye over the uh, <laughs> the remnants of yeah, the, this podcast yeah. Paul's Sauron like gaze across <laughs> the, uh, the football league is pretty much uh, 
covered everything in its wake, I think. So yeah, we're all we're all good. I, I definitely don't want to talk about last weekend's football. So uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, uh, I, I've had, I, I can't say anything. Can I've had plenty of weekends this year where I felt like that. In fact, pretty much every weekend, even when we beat Wolves, that was on a Monday. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't have the happiness of a weekend result. Um, but I've, I've, I've got I've, got, I've had some happiness because we've not played this weekend and we don't play next weekend. So um, the, the next yeah. the, the next game is actually a, a big football podcast derby. Paul, it's um, Arsenal against Liverpool. Exactly. Is that the first game back after the break? It is. Yeah, I think. I think it's. I can't. I, there's been talk of that being moved to the Saturday, but it doesn't look to me like it has. Um, which would okay. help. Which would help both Liverpool and Arsenal because it's a, a European week. We we get straight into it with uh, with Real Madrid. And yes, I haven't forgotten the final. And yes, I do want revenge. <laughs> it's uh, yeah. Currently, it's eight 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 p.m. on that Saturday. Uh, on Easter weekend. Oh, has it, has it actually been moved, has it? Yeah, yeah it is down at 8, eight o'clock Easter Saturday. The, the, the last I looked, there was a bit of a strange late game. It was, I, I don't know, not Aston Villa against Tottenham because that's just happened, but it was. I'm sure it was the Villa game that was late. And if there's not a good film on Easter Sunday night, then you can always cheer yourself up with Manchester United versus Brighton. <laughs> well, it's Easter. That means that Indiana Jones is bound to be on. <laughs> bit of Jolly Boys outing. Yeah, that'll be on. For, Jolly for, Boys outing. For, for, all, for all your, it's, I have not got a disease. This is an ear infection. Needs. <laughs> anyway, as, as much as I could turn this into the British comedy uh, podcast, we'll, we'll we better call it there. Otherwise, I'll be keeping you here for another hour and a half at least. As I uh, go into my art race impression about. Um, the B B B B B B B B B B C two and uh, not knowing Norse code. I said Norse code. I meant Morse code. <laughs> I'm I'm showing signs of mental exhaustion. We better call it there, don't we, gents? <laughs> um, again, um, to the both of you, I think you really, really put your points over really well about the um, football's darkest secret stuff. And if that's something we need to um, to review again in in the coming weeks, then we're, we're in safe hands there. Um, so yeah, a bit more of a, a serious episode this week to our, for our listeners, but we uh, we don't shirk away from the more serious subjects here. But we're always more than willing to to, to mock Gary Neville's dress sense at the same time. Um, so thank you very much for listening. Please don't forget that you can catch the Big Football Podcast on most weeks. We can't say every week at the moment, um, but we, uh, we were on um, Spotify, on iTunes, on Podbean and on Amazon Music. So hopefully we'll catch you on there. And thank you very much for your time this week. Paul, Khan, thank you very much. And we'll catch you again after a while. Mm-hmm.